0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Luke chapter 24 verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Luke 24, verses 5 and 6. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen.
1: Hi, everybody. It's great to see you today. My name is Howard. I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel. Everyone is welcome in our church family. And I want to be the person here today to wish you a very happy Easter. Um, I want to start with a question for you. Have you ever wondered why Christians are so ecstatically excited and happy about Easter in a sort of maybe weird over-the-top way for some people? Uh, Is it a personality thing, right? Is it that it's just happy people? Well, if I'm anything to go by, definitely not. I am a naturally glum personality. I have a very miserable natural facial expression. Uh, (laughs) Some people will know that more than others. So it's not that. What it is is that we have found something extraordinary. Or rather, something extraordinary has found us. And it's not chocolate at Easter. (laughs) It is hope. Hope. An extraordinary hope. A hope that conquers death. A hope that comforts in the time of suffering. A hope that gives us assurance that one day justice will be done. A hope that is personal. And it's not just hope though. It is freedom. It is joy. It is love. It is peace. It is an end to the resounding gong of guilt. It is freedom from suffocating. You're not good enough, shame. The truth is that every one of us here, online, in person, we're all looking for something. We're all searching for something. Some people are looking for self worth in relationships, a sense of acceptance in that, in following, in applause, in approval, in fans, and all that kind of stuff. Others are looking for a sense of achievement. Uh, A significance that comes from productivity and career and building, you know, businesses and stuff like that. Others are looking for a sense of security and comfort in possessions and in homes and in cars and in chocolate, alcohol and Netflix as well. Now these things, they they offer us a little bit of something, don't they? they? They give us something, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. This came home to me very powerfully when I was 18 years old. And I discovered that super famous, super wealthy, super popular, supermodel Kate Moss, was at the same mental health institution as me. The Priory Clinic. All that stuff didn't make her happy. Think of Lady Gaga, super famous, successful pop star in the eyes of the world. She says she's battled anxiety and depression all her life and continues to do so. Or the Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps, 28 Olympic medals is his haul. It's phenomenal. Yet he says after the 2012 Olympics, he spent three days in his bedroom alone, not wanting to be alive. He had it all. Yeah, he was unhappy. I wonder if you can identify with their search, with the struggle of their search, with the pain of their search, with the the promise and the disappointment of their search. And then let me ask you this question. Are they, are we, are you and I looking for the living among the dead? As you think about that, I want to say that for some of us, we, we really struggle um, to know ourselves, a sense of self-awareness. I know this is true of myself. I, I'm, I'm 43 years old, and I'm still only beginning to really work myself out. It's so true, and I think sometimes we're a lot like toddlers, Maybe you know the experience and a toddler comes up to you and they kind of walk up and they, they stamp their feet like this and they kind of scrunch up their face like this and they're all tense like this. And, and you say to them, what are you angry about? And they say, I'm not angry. You're like, well, your words are telling me one thing, but your body is saying something completely different. Now, we've grown up, hopefully, from some of that behavior. Um, And we've developed more subtle coping mechanisms to deal with our unmet needs, with the frustration and that deep inner longing for something other and beyond that this world doesn't seem ultimately able to satisfy. The brilliant Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, he himself was a convert from atheism to Christianity. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He put it like this. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In the fourth century, a sex addict is called Augustine. He would become a convert from that to Christianity, become one of the greatest theologians in the Christian faith. He put it like this. He says, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in Thee. I wonder if your heart is restless. I wonder if you feel the pain of Spending your life searching, searching, searching for stuff. It promises so much, but if you're honest, you're getting increasingly bored by it all. Or maybe you find yourself here and partly perhaps because of the pandemic, your hope levels, which were higher before, are now at an incredibly low level of hope in your life. And you've lost the sense of confidence and hope and optimism about your personal future, your family's future, your church's future, humanity's future. Maybe you're grieving about that. Maybe there's a sense of sorrow and deep trouble in your heart. Perhaps you're not unlike the women in the passage that we just heard read to us who were full of grief. And God cares. He cared for them in that moment. And he sent two angels to redirect their search. Now, it should be obvious to you that I'm not an angel, (laughs) right? But I do believe I'm here, sent by God, to help redirect your search. Or to help you remember what you found. And so, I'm going to try and do that by making three points in this message the first of those is the subversive location of hope today in the 21st century western world most people don't expect to find what they're truly looking for in christianity or the church we've been conditioned not to for years decades perhaps You see this in memes. It's quite common. um, Memes, these things that go around social media. I'm just going to pick up on three of them. The first of those goes like this. Christianity did not become a major religion by the quality of its truth, but by the quantity of its violence. Now I know that there have been some really bad so-called Christians in history who've done awful and violent things. They are wrong, absolutely. But to dismiss Christianity because of bad adherence to it is a little bit like dismissing the composer Beethoven. Because you've heard me play one of his pieces of music, right? And, and just so you know, I can't really read music. I can't even play a musical instrument. And if you heard me singing earlier, you would, be, you would be terrified of how bad it was. But if you heard that of me doing Beethoven, you'd be like, I don't want to listen to any Beethoven. Just that would be silly, right? Because I'm just a bad performer of Beethoven. Christianity... Wasn't founded by a violent taking of power, but by a powerful submission to violence. Its founder, God, Jesus Christ, suffered the greatest abuse of injustice as an innocent one dying on a cross. And he, as you've heard already, he was raised to life. And his followers continued this pattern, non-violent love in the face of tyranny to oppressors. So confident were they that Jesus had defeated and overcome death that they were willing to die, be martyred, and the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church, and the Christian faith grew further and further and faster and faster to spread all the way to the center of the Roman Empire, their capital, Rome itself. By which point, uh, a, a historian called Cornelius Tacitus describes, and he's born in about 56 A.D. and he's writing about the persecution under Nero in 66 AD of Christians by that point being a multitude in Rome all the way from the backwater province of Galilee and he talks about the ways that they suffered terribly because they would not renounce their faith this is the story of the first 300 years of the Christian faith I would argue that it is indisputably true that for the first 300 years of the Christian faith Christianity was completely non-violent because it was about the quality of the content of its teaching and its founder taught that we were to love our enemies. Here's Here's a second meme that comes up Uh, Maybe you've seen this one. Welcome to a religion where everything's made up and the women don't matter. I'll deal with the first part later. But women matter to God. Of course they do. He made men and women in his image, in his likeness. He honours womanhood by being born of a woman, Mary. He could have just shown up as a toddler or as an adult, but he didn't. He honours Mary herself with this unbelievable privilege and responsibility. And in his ministry, he loves women, women caught in adultery. He doesn't condemn them. He loves upon them graciously and compassionately. A woman by the world, shamed into isolation by her community. He crosses all the boundaries to go to be near her, not caring what others would say about him. He had women who were his disciples. And here in this passage, who would he choose to be the first to witness the resurrection? He chose women. Women. And this, I think, is partly why the majority of the millions and millions of believers today all around the world, the majority are actually women because they've seen something truly beautiful in the person of Jesus. Here's the third and final meme. Look at this guy. He blindly follows what religion says without giving it any thought. This is interesting because I think Christians give their faith a lot of thought. Christianity itself, it's a historical faith. It's not a private faith in the sense where you'd have other belief systems that come from a private dream or a private idea which you can't interrogate, investigate, challenge very easily. Christianity, by contrast, it's public. It's based on events of history, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and it's all about whether they did or didn't happen. And you you can explore that for yourself. That's quite extraordinary. That means that Christians are not... People of blind faith, who don't care what the evidence says. It means that our faith is reasonable. It's based on reasons and logic and thought and thinking. But yes, we do stand upon that and then take a leap of faith. I'm not going into the baptism tank, (laughs) trying to avoid that. Um, but we take a leap of faith. Now, the brilliant Blaise Pascal, he's a mathematician, he was a Christian. Um, he's said to be a genius of his own time. He laid the foundation for the modern theory of probability. He put it like this. In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. And there is a Divine reason for why it is that way. But I'm not going to tell you what I think it is. <laughs> That's one for you to go away and think about for yourself. What I want to do is to move us on now to the point that I've started to begin already, and it's this it's the subversive nature of hope. The nature of hope. I wonder if you've ever misunderstood the nature of something. He completely mixed it up, misjudged it. Here's a silly illustration. I don't know if you can quite just about read it. Somebody's received this test message about an appointment uh, to reply to confirm date and time. And he writes, pee-pee-poo-poo, apologies if, if you're not happy with that. This is Justin, this is not an automated message. Should we consider this a confirmation for said date and time? And he's like, oh no, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm available. One of those awkward moments. He mistook the nature of a human being for an automated message, a robot. Awkward. Just a warning. Try not to do that if that's you. But I think we often misunderstand the nature of hope itself. If you look in a dictionary today, you'll read a definition of hope that says, a desired outcome for the future. That may or may not happen. That is not the biblical understanding of hope. The Christian view of hope is that it is historical but also heavenly. And therefore it is a completely different nature and order. It's got teeth and substance to it. There's a certainty about it. So I want to develop this idea about the nature of the Christian hope. And it not being blind faith but evidentially solid and sound. By replaying a conversation that I had on my own journey to faith. This is, this is how it went. It was with a, a, a Christian. who uh, had been a person who'd been a Christian for some years. I, I said to him, this will tell you a lot about me. Surely no reasonable person could ever believe that someone could come back from the dead. My friend says, well, Howard, what do you think happened? How do you explain the evidence? How do you make sense of an empty tomb that's even accepted by non-Christian scholars. I say, well, maybe Jesus just walked out of the tomb himself. Maybe he wasn't dead. My friend says, well, just think about what he'd been through. He had been beaten and he had been flogged to within an inch of his life. He'd been then tortured on the cross. They broke his legs. They put a spear through his side. Blood and water had come out. Do Do you really think he would have survived all of that? I now know that they even did an article in the Journal uh, of uh, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association showing of all the evidence that it was impossible for Jesus to have survived, that he must have been dead on the cross. So then I said, maybe the disciples stole the body. That's why the tomb is empty. And he said, okay, well, consider this, that, that it would have been guarded by Roman soldiers and sealed as well. And that those soldiers, if they failed in their duty, they would be executed. That was kind of the law of the land at the time. And then what would the motive of those disciples have been? My brain is sort of trying to catch up at this moment. And I say, well, maybe the disciples just, maybe they made the whole thing up. Maybe that's what they did. My friend at this point, he pushes back really firmly and he says, that one I just don't think is realistic at all. He said they would be completely hypocritical against the very founder that they're trying to worship and honor who spoke about truth and integrity. They couldn't just lie and deceive and make the whole thing up. That would be crazy. And then what would their reward be for doing all of that? suffering, not money and fame, but they'd be likely to die along with their families. That's crazy. Now, I'm beginning to struggle a little bit, so I come up with this theory. What if it was just a hallucination? What if in their grief, they just saw what they wanted to see? And he says, but Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, hundreds, and on one occasion, more than 500 It's impossible for them all to have the exact same hallucination at the exact same time. And even for them to have a hallucination about something they had no foundation for in their Jewish worldview or way of thinking, that a sinless person existed and could be God and would come back resurrected, not at the end of time. That's what Jewish people believed back then. But in the middle of time, that didn't make sense. So why would they ever come up with that as an idea or or a notion? That just doesn't make sense. I found myself absolutely floundering, stuck, struggling to come up with any better alternative explanation for the sudden and dramatic birth of the Christian faith. How how, how could I do that? Now, you might be thinking about this. What if the Bible was just made up? What if it's unreliable? What if it's not accurate? What if it's not been recorded correctly? Well, I thought that too, so I went back and investigated and found that there's just so many manuscripts. There's just huge numbers so close in time to these events taking place that you can cross-reference against each other and see if there's been any diversion or any discrepancies. But actually, no, they, they corroborate in an extraordinarily powerful way to suggest that they're, they're really accurate. This really did actually happen. And when you hold to the same standard of historical scrutiny for things like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, 49 A.D., You discover that, whoa, the resurrection actually is is better attested by a mile. Okay, quick recap, quick summary. So, despite what our culture might say, Christianity is actually a really good place to find what you're looking for. And the hope that it offers isn't some maybe wishy washy kind of hope, it's solid. You can take it to the bank and cash. But the question is, who gets to receive it? That's the final point. The subversive recipients of hope. Our culture today is all about the survival of the fittest. It rewards the strong. The rich get richer. Those who are considered beautiful by our culture because of their external appearance, they're the ones who are honoured and adored and become supermodels and get money and all that kind of stuff. The Christian faith subverts all of that. And it does it through transforming a symbol, an image. Crucifixion. Crucifixion in the ancient world was the ultimate way of saying might is right. We're better than you. You're rubbish. We dominate you. This is why Islamic State used it against Christians in Iraq only a few years ago. It's why the Romans used it against people who they saw as the lowest of the low, that they would publicly humiliate, publicly shame and expose and say, we are the powerful, the gods are on our side, we are the mighty ones, you are rubbish, and the fact that we can crucify you demonstrates how much better than you we actually are. That was what was going on here. That was what the image of the cross meant. If you were living in the first century, It's hard for us to compute the transformation that has happened. But in Jesus Christ, in God coming and willingly allowing himself to be nailed to a cross... To become the ultimate scapegoat, the ultimate victim, the ultimate weak one, the ultimate suffering one. And yet doing all of that as an act of spiritual violence against sin and death by taking upon himself upon the cross... All of our evil, all of our wrongdoing, all of our injustice, all of our crimes, all of the wrong things that we have said, thought and done, and all the good stuff that we should have done that we, that we never did. All of that wrath, that judgment comes on him so that we can go free. He's transforming the very nature of what's happening in this symbol. He's representative of of others. It's not about the dominion of Darkness over evil, but it's about light triumphing over that darkness. And he's beginning to break in for us a better understanding of a world where there is hope. That though we might be guilty, we can be forgiven because of the cross. Though we might die, we can be raised to life. We might not have to fear death anymore. But there is justice Because the worst evil in the world of what happened at the cross, the innocent one being executed has been undone and he's now raised to life in glory. All evil, all injustice can be done. There is hope. But who gets to receive it? Who is it for? Well, that comes really in the story. The first people to experience it, I've said already, Are women, the oppressed gender of the ancient world. The most common victims of injustice, you might say. And God comes and says, I want them to know hope. I stand and I did this for them. And all who would identify with them. And then along comes Peter. He's uneducated, unrespected. He's just a simple fisherman. He speaks with an accent as an orphaner that others would mock and think he's a simpleton. But God says, no, you're mine, man. I'm going to build my church with you. The Apostle Paul, who is an enemy of Christianity, encounters the risen Jesus, becomes an eminent preacher. He put it like this. He says in a letter in AD 56 that he wrote, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The way up in life, the way up to hope, the way up to God is actually down in humility and in confession and repentance and recognizing that we have no hope without him. The way to real strength in life, a strength that will help you withstand the fiercest storms that life will throw at you, is by admitting that you're not strong, is admitting, I am weak without Christ, only in him can I be strong. And the way to life eternal is through death, a spiritual death. It's through dying to your sin, to yourself, to your me, me, me nature and saying, no, 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 I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live for his glory. And as we do that, we gain an assurance of hope. We gain an assurance of salvation. We gain the hope of resurrection life. We start to realize that we are safe forever, our self-worth. He died. That's how much he loves us. He died for me. I get significance. I get security all in the package of faith in Jesus. This is what you're looking for. This is soul satisfaction. This is subversive hope. Does it reside in you? Are you drinking of it? Are you living in it if you're a Christian now? Is this the well from which you draw your strength? How can you know? How can you know? Well, one way to know is by the subversiveness of the life that you live. Do you love your enemy? Do you not let your emotions go up or down by how much material possessions or money or stuff that you have? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you seek to take power? Or you're, you're about empowering others. The truth is only dead fish go with the flow this Easter my prayer my hope is that you would know the love of God demonstrated at the cross that he loves you and he cares for you whoever you are how undeserving you think you are, he loves you and that also you would know the power of the resurrection a supernatural strength by which to swim against the currents of our culture, the dark currents, the selfish currents, all the temptations that are out there, that by the subversive way that we live our lives in response to Easter, we might be able to show others a better way and a true hope. My final question for you is this. In this true story, who are you? Who are you? Are you one of the women allowing God to redirect your search? Are you Peter? He heard the the testimonies of the women and he didn't dismiss them out of hand. You've heard some testimonies this morning. And from what he'd heard, he he ran and he went to the empty tomb and he, he saw something that made him marvel. Or will you be like the other disciples at this point in the story? You just say, "It's just idle talk. It's nonsense." Why would we believe the word of these women? My prayer is that you choose hope, and in choosing hope, you'd find something extraordinary too. He is risen. He really is alive. There really is hope in this world and we can know joy because of that hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you're alive that you're here, that you're present, you're not dead, you're in glory, you're reigning, you sent the Holy Spirit to us even now to make these truths come alive to our hearts. And so we pray for the most discouraged person, for those who are in despair, for those who are in doubt, for those who feel so disillusioned with life, Lord God, for those who feel unwanted and rejected by society, Lord, for those who are grieving like these women were, feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders, how can we go on with life, Lord, we pray, let hope break in. Let hope arise. Let the truth of the gospel come. Lord, that this symbol that has been overturned and is now our symbol of great hope and joy that was once oppression be the great turnaround that is evidence in the lives of all of us. Lord, come, build your hope and build your church, we pray for the glory of your name. Amen.